as you know, I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you very much for being here on this lovely Sunday morning. Today is the final talk in our three-part series on the presidency of our nation's 39th president, Jimmy Carter. Two weeks ago, we heard from the director of his presidential library. A week ago, we heard from a noted academic Carter scholar. And this morning, we have the privilege of hearing from someone who was a key figure in the Carter administration, someone who worked very closely with President Carter on a daily basis in the White House, Ambassador Stuart Eisenstein. After serving as the policy director in the 1976 Carter campaign, Ambassador Eisenstadt served the whole four years of the Carter presidency as his chief domestic policy advisor and as the executive director of the White House domestic policy staff. In addition to his service in the Carter administration, the ambassador served in key positions over the course of a decade and a half or more of federal service for two other presidents, namely Lyndon Johnson and Bill Clinton. He served on President Johnson's White House staff, and he served in a number of senior positions for President Clinton, including those of Deputy Secretary of the Treasury and Ambassador to the European Union, hence the title Ambassador. He's presently senior counsel at the law firm of Covington and Burling, where he heads the firm's international practice. He's a cum laude graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and Harvard Law School. And he is the author of what everyone says is the definitive work, the definitive book on the Carter presidency. I have it right there. It's available for purchase in the back, and I hope that you will stay and do that and uh, have it signed by Ambassador uh, Eisenstadt. It's called President Carter, the White House Years. With that, please join me in welcoming Stuart Eisenstadt. Thank you very much. I'm really honored, uh, Clark, that you invited me to be part of this distinguished speaker series that you have at the Church of the Presidents. Uh, and as we know, every president since James Madison has at least had one service here. This, for me, is life coming full circle because almost exactly 40 years ago, on another clear, sunny, cold winter day, we had uh, our pre-inauguration service with uh, Rector John Harper. Uh, it was very inspirational, and, and I think every president since FDR has had their pre-inaugural service here. And for Jeremy Carter, this was not a one-time event. He really suffused his religiosity his adoption of the social gospel as a core part of his life and his presidency. It's one of the reasons that he became a champion for civil rights at home and human rights abroad. He regularly attended church in Washington almost every Sunday that he was here and often taught Sunday school here as well. Jimmy Carter's political idol was Harry Truman, and he placed his famous slogan, the buck stops here, on his Oval Office desk. Both presidents left office highly unpopular. Truman is now remembered much more for his achievements than for his failures. And I hope that my book will have a similar impact on a reassessment of Jimmy Carter as president, not simply as the most admired, longest serving former president. I believe that he 
was the most underrated, underappreciated, consequential first term and one term president in American history. And I base that on things that are in the book. Almost 70% of our major legislation was passed by Congress just under the percentage of the legendary Lyndon Johnson, the master of Congress. The immediate post-war era of Watergate in which he served was one in which he restored honor to the presidency. He respected the independence of the judiciary, of the Justice Department, of the FBI, of the intelligence community, and respected the role of the press in a free society, even when it was brutally uh, frank about his problems. His vice president, Walter Mondale, in words that are now inscribed at the Carter Center in Atlanta, summed it up by saying, we told the truth, we obeyed the law, and we kept the peace. Now the rap on the Carter presidency is summarized by what I call four I's, Iran, inflation, inexperience by the president and his so-called Georgia Mafia, and inter-party warfare with the liberal wing of the party headed by Ted Kennedy. And I do not gloss over those. I'm completely candid about them. But the problem is that they have obscured a whole raft of accomplishments at home and abroad. And I wanted to write this book to give a complete an honest assessment of the 39th president. Warts and all, mistakes and failures, yes, including my own as his advisor. This is not a book that could have been entitled if he'd only listened to me. <laughs> but one in which there is a full picture of also the accomplishments, which have been obscured by the failures. And I base it on 5,000 pages of contemporaneous notes that I took of everything I saw and heard, augmented by over 350 interviews. And I did not make those interviews selective. I interviewed conservatives and liberals, Republicans and Democrats, supporters and detractors. And I wanted to do so while there were still living eyewitnesses including the president, and before the indelible notion that somehow this was a failed presidency was embodied in people's minds. So this is very special for me because of the location, because of coming back here, because I have so many friends and former White House colleagues here. Uh, I have uh, people from my firm at Covington. So again, it's very much appreciated. In order to understand the Carter presidency, you have to appreciate the 1970s in which we governed. Now looking at the audience, many of you weren't born then, so let me remind you a little bit about it. It was a time of epic change. We had undergone the first military defeat in Vietnam. We had urban violence on 14th Street, just a few blocks from here, which I saw from the portico of the Johnson White House. We had the first president 
resigning after Watergate. And we had a phenomenon economically of simultaneous high inflation and low growth that economists had to give the sort of ugly name of stagflation. It was also a time of a whole new set of social movements, all of which cascaded in the 1970s and which we take for granted now, but which were all very new. The environmental movement, the consumer movement, the women's rights movement, the black power movement, and yes, the pro-life movement after the Roe v. Wade decision. A new political force, which is very much with us today, was catalyzed in the mid-1970s by the Reverend Jerry Falwell, who basically made the evangelical movement a political force and who called the most religious president we've ever had, not a real Baptist and someone who harbored homosexuals on his staff. And Ronald Reagan in 1980 was able to marry that newly energized, catalyzed evangelical movement together with Richard Nixon's so-called silent majority of dissatisfied blue-collar workers in the Midwest and Northeast. And that's the very coalition that undergirds President Trump today. The 1970s was also a period abroad of profound change. The Soviet Union was, during the Cold War, at the apex of its influence, with huge increases in defense spending in the air, on the water, and on the ground, challenging our own supremacy militarily, supporting Cuban proxy troops to stir up communist revolutions in the Horn of Africa, invading Afghanistan, more on that later, and even supporting so-called Euro-communist parties with particular success in Italy uh, among our NATO allies. It was a decade in which a new major political force abroad, China, first came onto the world scene. Again, more on that later. It was a decade in which a Polish-born priest became Pope John Paul II, and together with President Carter's own human rights campaign, gave people living behind the Iron Curtain hope for the future. And yes, it was a decade in which a revolution, which is front page news to this very day, the Islamic radical revolution in Iran, burst onto the scene and engulfed our administration. The most important of our domestic achievements, I believe, was in the area of energy, but it's only one of many. When we came into office, 50% and growing of all of our energy needs came from imported oil from OPEC. We were at their mercy. And the energy security we enjoy today rests on the foundation of three major energy bills that President Carter championed and signed, which unleashed the potential of developing domestic 
oil and gas, by ending price controls, which would suppress production, by putting conservation at the center of our national consciousness, by things like the first fuel economy standards, and by inaugurating the new clean energy era of wind and solar. And right across the street, I was with him when he installed the first solar panel to dramatize the fact that we were in a new era, and now 10% of our electricity comes from solar power. And he made the most difficult of those compromises, which had taken every president since Harry Truman in 1948 to solve the deregulation of natural gas. And he did it in the map room where FDR charted the course of World War II by something you would never see today, by having two liberal members of the Democratic Party in the House and two conservative Republicans from the Senate agree on the formula for phasing out controls. President Carter was also a great consumer champion. He appointed people from the consumer movement to regulate industries, not as today, taking those who come from or lobby for the industry. And he combined that with transformative, really revolutionary deregulation of all modes of transportation, which had been heavily regulated, trucks, buses, rail, and most important for you and I as consumers, airline deregulation. We brought airline travel to the middle class. We democratized air travel. Now, that might not seem so great if you're in row 36E in the middle of an economy <laughs> class, but those were seats that were empty in the regulated era, when there was no competition and no new entries. There would be no JetBlue, no Southwest as we know it today, had we not removed those shackles, and we didn't stop there. We began the deregulation of telecommunications, inaugurating the cable era, and even ended prohibition era restrictions on the flow of local craft beers. <laughs> so this may be the wrong place to talk about that. But if you take some, you can pray for your sins at 11 o'clock, I guess. It's Jimmy Carter was the greatest environmental president since Theodore Roosevelt, unmatched before or since. He doubled the size of the whole national park system, which TR created through the Alaska Lands Bill. And he did it in typical Carter fashion over the objection of the entire Alaska delegation, which wanted the state totally open for oil and gas exploration. And he concluded it by taking a giant map of the state, putting it on the Oval Office rug, getting on his hands and knees with Senator Ted Stevens, a senior Republican who had represented the state for 25 years, and showed him where every mountain, where every riverbed would be, what would be protected, what could be available for development. And that sealed the deal. And Stevens said he was amazed that Carter knew more about his state than he did having represented it for two and a half decades. All the post-Watergate ethics laws in place today, every single one of them, came from Jimmy Carter having run against Watergate and getting Congress to enact them. So, for example, the Ethics Act of 1978, which is not 
old business. It's in force today in 2020. Required disclosure of all senior officials' assets and conflicts of interest coming in. Restricted gifts that you could take to $25 when you're in office and restricted your ability to lobby the agencies with whom you worked after you came out. The inspectors general, you can re read the Washington Post, is barely a week in which there's not an inspector general's report. We created those to root out fraud, waste, and abuse. Where did Robert Mueller come from? The successor to our special counsel legislation to have someone independent to review potential wrongdoing by senior officials. Merit selection of judges, civil service reform, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act to bar companies from bribing foreign officials to get jobs. All of these and many more are more important than ever in an ethically challenged Washington. Now I got caught up inadvertently in the gift rule because there was a profile done of me in a business magazine early in administration saying that I had a great penchant and love for the little one-cent Tootsie Rolls that maybe many of you remember when we were growing up. And I liked them, but I mean, I didn't have a fetish for them, but that's what it said. <laughs> and so the Tootsie Roll company sent me a giant box, I mean, like a lifetime supply. And I had young kids at the time, and I said, I'm going to be father for life when I bring this home, only to find out from the ethics officer, he said, damned if I'm going to count every one of these, but it may be more than $25, you have to return it. <laughs> so I wrote a letter to the CEO, and I thanked him, and I said, you know, we're living in a new high, higher moral plane post-Watergate, and I'm sorry I can't accept it. Well, the problem was about a year later, there was a profile done of the Tootsie Roll Company, and the CEO said Eisenstadt tried to have it both ways. He writes us this high and mighty letter. We open the box. It's empty. So I'm still trying to find a Secret Service agent who stole my Tootsie Roll. More seriously, at a really crucial time as we were going into our 1980 re-election campaign, the mastermind of our 76 campaign, our chief of staff, Ham Jordan, got caught up in the special counsel rule, which had a hair trigger at the time, because of a false allegation made by someone named Roy Cohn, who was the Senator McCarthy's top aide and the first political mentor for Donald J. Trump, and who was representing the owners of a bar in New York called Studio 54. Ham should never have been in the bar, but they alleged, as he was trying to plea bargain for his clients who were being charged with tax evasion, that Ham had snorted cocaine. Now, a million dollars later out of Ham's pocket, the grand jury unanimously said there's no truth to that, but that's not the point. During that entire investigation to his chief of staff, not once did Carter berate the investigation as a political act. Did he try to interfere? Did he try to bully? Because we believe in the rule of law. I'll let you come to your own conclusions and comparisons. Here is a president from the deepest part of the Deep South. And you have to go to planes to believe it. No traffic lights, more gnats than there are people. <laughs> and he appoints more women and more African Americans and Hispanics to senior positions in the administration and to judgeships 
than all 38 presidents before him put together. There were five women on the courts of appeal out of 500. There were 40 when he left. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, and we appointed her to the Court of Appeals, she'd never been on the Supreme Court but for Carter opening up judgeships to women and to minorities. And that was only part of it, affirmative action, minority set-asides. Uh, he was a great education president, the Department of Education under him, uh, and much more, saving New York City from bankruptcy and Chrysler. He and Mondale created the modern vice presidency as we know it today. It had been a constitutional afterthought. Anybody who's read Hamilton or seen the play, John Nance Garner, who was FDR's first vice president, said, it's a position not worth a bucket of warm spit, and I'm cleaning the language up in this church. <laughs> it was a nothing position. Harry Truman didn't know there was an atomic bomb project when FDR died. And when Mondale and Carter were elected during the transition in 1976, Mondale sent him a memo. He asked for access to all classified documents, the ability to go into any meeting without notice, one-on-one -on -one meetings every week with the president over lunch in the Oval Office. Carter checked and did every one of them and then added another one. And that is he moved the office of the vice president from the old executive office building, now called the Eisenhower building, right into the West Wing, right down from the Oval Office, because just like in real estate, in politics, location is everything. And the vice presidency is now a genuine partner of the president because of Mondale and Carter. Now, one of those fatal eyes that I mentioned at the beginning was inflation. And I'm very candid in the book about it. We inherited high inflation from Ford and Carter, but it got worse in part because of the Iranian Revolution, shutting off Iranian oil and doubling the price of oil in a 12-month period. And Carter called us in, in 1979, as we're starting to look at our re-election, and he said, you know, I've tried everything to deal with this embedded decade-long inflation, and nothing's worked. Two anti-inflation czars, five nationwide speeches, I've had to cut domestic spending to try to satisfy financial markets and hurt myself with the liberal wing of the party. Voluntary wage and price guidelines with sanctions for companies doing business with the government. Nothing's worked. And I'm going to give the economy the toughest medicine that it can take, knowing that it risked his re-election. And so he appointed Paul Volcker to be chairman of the Fed. And Volcker told him in a one-on-one -on -one meeting I recount in the book. If you appoint me, I'll only take the job if you don't point the finger at me later and say the high interest rates and high unemployment that are going to come as I squeeze the money supply and really choke inflation out of the system. If you blame it on me, I'm not taking the job. And Carter said, you take care of the economy. I'll take care of the politics. And not once, when God knows the temptation was there, as interest rates soared, did Carter ever complain. And it worked. There's not one serious economist, Republican, Democrat, conservative, or liberal, 
Every one of Volcker's successors will tell you, Greenspan and Bernanke and so forth, they'll uh, all tell you it was the discipline that Volcker put in and that Carter permitted him to do that changed the whole inflation psychology and it's the reason we have one and a half, two percent inflation today instead of double digit inflation. So it worked. Inflation dropped like a rock after Ronald Reagan's first year. Not in time to help us politically. And that's symbolic of so much of what we did where we laid the seeds that only flowered after we left office. Abroad, his accomplishments are equally, if not more, dramatic. The greatest single act, in my opinion, of personal presidential diplomacy was the Camp David Accords and the Egypt-Israel Peace Agreement. Between two countries, Israel and Egypt, that had fought five bitter wars between 1948 and 1973. And Carter, against the advice of almost everyone, invited Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, and Anwar Sadat, the President of Egypt, to come to Camp David after Sadat's historic trip to Jerusalem in which he pledged no more wars, and the countries, the two countries, could not make that simple statement into anything concrete. And so he really rolled the dice and his whole presidency on it. Over 13 agonizing days and nights, this was not a photo opportunity with Mr. Kim, he drafted 22 separate peace agreements and had to negotiate them separately with Begin and his team and Sadat and his because when we put them together the first day, it was like two scorpions in a bottle. And he studied the CIA reports and the profiles on these two leaders to understand where their red lines were, what motivated them. And the first Sunday of those 13 days, he took them to Camp David, from uh, Camp David, excuse me, to Gettysburg to see the battlefield with Sadat on his right and Begin on his left. And he said, no negotiations. I want you to see Gettysburg. To reinforce what five wars had meant, to dramatize that it was time to make peace. And it had an electric effect. Sadat was a general. He had actually studied in some of our military academies here. And he knew the Gettysburg battle from start to finish, all the mistakes that the Confederates made, including Pickett's last charge, which was a little uncomfortable for Carter to hear, but uh, it was uh, a, a demonstration of how he had absorbed it. Begin was anything but a military man, but he was a Lincoln scholar, and on the spot, verbatim, he delivered Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. It's really a dramatic moment, but with that, with 22 drafts, with 13 days, the last Sunday when everybody agreed if we can't do it now, we have to leave. We're close but not there and Begin comes to the President's cabin at Camp David and said, Mr. President, I cannot and will not make any further compromises. I'm out of here. I've got an El Al plane waiting at Andrews Air Force Base. Get me a White House limousine. I simply can't stay any longer. 
Carter realizing this would be catastrophic. It would send Sadat, who had risked his life to go to Jerusalem home, empty-handed. It would strengthen the radicals who had criticized Sadat for going to Jerusalem, like Assad, the current dictator's father in Syria. And it would engulf his own presidency in a dramatic failure. And so again, understanding Begin, he had eight copies of a photograph made when the three leaders first came. He got the names of each of Begin's eight grandchildren, knowing how much he loved them, personally autographed them with best wishes for peace, and walked it over to Begin's cabin as literally his bags were packed. And he saw Begin vocalize the names of each of his grandchildren. And his lips quivered, his eyes teared. He put his bags down and he said, I'll make one last try. And that's how Camp David happened. It's another story about the treaty, which was equally dramatic. And that treaty has lasted for 40 years, never once an even technical violation, and removed Israel's greatest Arab threat, uh, Egypt. Human rights were central to his foreign policy, the first president to stress human rights. And it's the measure against which future presidents are judged. This was not a sort of naive notion. We were in the midst of a Cold War for the hearts and minds of people around the world with the Soviet Union. And he realized this was their soft underbelly, their autocracy, and our strength, our respect for democracy and free speech and independent judiciary. And he applied it to the military dictators in Latin America who were pro-American and anti-communist but very dictatorial, got thousands of political prisoners released as we cut uh, arms off and military assistance. And there's not one Democrat today, and I say that with a small d, democratically elected Latin American president who won't tell you that it was Jimmy Carter who catalyzed the democratic movement that exists to this day. And then we created a new era in Latin American relations with the Panama Canal Treaty, which was our bloodiest battle with the Senate. We needed two-thirds of the Senate, and more than two-thirds of the Senate and the public were against it when we started. Carter talked or met with every one of the hundred senators, senator by senator. And here again, something you wouldn't see today, there were two real unexpected people who supported it. One was the Republican leader of the Senate, Howard Baker, who was very short in physical stature, but a great man. Knowing that it would mean he would never get the Republican nomination, he supported it and brought a dozen Republicans along. And the most improbable was the conservative senator from California, Hayakawa, who had coined the phrase, it's our canal, we stole it fair and square. <laughs> Hardly a likely vote to make up the two-thirds majority, but Mondale had worked with him and knew that even by Senate standards, he had a very high vanity level. And he put Hayakawa on the phone with Carter, and the president said, Senator, what can I do to convince you 
to support this treaty. Don't talk to me about the treaty. You know what I feel about it. But if you will let me meet you once every two weeks, just the two of us, in the Oval Office, so I can share my wisdom with you, then I'll consider doing it. And Carter said, Senator, I wouldn't want to leave limit you to just once every two weeks, I might want to see you more often. <laughs> Flattered he voted for the treaty, Carter never saw him again. <laughs> we also embraced human rights with respect to the Soviet Union. We championed the cause of Soviet Jewry, doubling the number of Soviet Jews who left, saved the life of the leading so-called refusenik, Natan Sharansky, who was charged with being a spy of the United States by saying, and Sharansky gives Carter credit for saving his life, that this was nonsense. But one of the things that I think is the greatest surprise in the book is that somehow Carter is seen as being weak on defense. I make the case, validated by a new Pentagon study, that just the opposite was the case. We reversed the post-Vietnam decline in spending, Every single one of the major weapon systems that President Reagan implemented, and I give him credit for it, every single one we started, the MX mobile missile, intermediate nuclear forces in Europe, the cruise missile, the stealth bomber, every single one. And then even his conservative critics say that his finest hour was his response to the Afghan invasion by the Soviet Union, in which they put their own puppet in, I think, by the way, it was the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. And what does Carter do? He announces what's still called the Carter Doctrine. Any further penetration into the Gulf would be met with military force. We embargoed grain to the Soviet Union four weeks before the Iowa caucuses, where they happened to make a lot of grain. We boycotted the Olympics in 1980, which the Soviets were going to hold up as a sort of model. I'm talking about a tough meeting to have these young Olympians come in and explain to them why they couldn't go to Moscow after they had trained for four years. And we armed the Mujahideen, draft registration, and much more. Now, I give Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger great credit for reaching out to China in the Shanghai Community of 1972, but they did not restore diplomatic relations with China because of the force of the Taiwan lobby and the Republican Party. Carter did. He severed relations with Taiwan and created a new relationship that exists to this very day, both cultural and defense. And I was in the cabinet room when Deng Xiaoping, all four foot 11 of them, came to see the president. And I remember seeing him and saying, how does this guy control a billion Chinese? And we're in the cabinet room, and he said, Mr. President, I appreciate this historic step you've taken, but what I really need to change and turn around the Chinese economy is the lowest tariff levels that you grant to your most favored uh, nations. And he said, I know that there's a law, it's a Jackson-Vanik law, that bars that for any country that restricts immigration. But that, he says, Mr. President, was aimed at the Soviet Union. We don't limit the number of Chinese who want to leave. And then he takes a little White House notepad, the White House Washington with a pencil, pushes it over to Carter and says, write down the number of Chinese you'd like us to send you each year. A million, 10 million? 
And Carter said, I'll tell you what, we'll make a deal right now. I'll take 10 million Chinese if you'll take 10,000 American journalists. <laughs> Neither had to fulfill that. Now, another one of the eyes, and this was truly fatal, was Iran. I don't think it's fair to blame Carter for losing Iran any more than it would be fair to blame Dwight Eisenhower for losing Cuba to the Communist Revolution or Barack Obama for losing Mubarak. But having said that, I'm brutal in analyzing the mistakes we made here. Here is the Shah of Iran who the CIA and MI6, the British intelligence, jointly put back on his father's throne deposing a popular elected prime minister. And then he became, for every president, Republican and Democrat, our man in the Middle East, open shopping list of military assistance. And yet the CIA didn't know that our man in the Middle East was being treated for five years with incurable cancer. They didn't realize that his domestic support had evaporated and rested on quicksand. And they didn't appreciate that the cassettes, the sort of earliest social media, uh, that Khomeini, the leader of the revolution, was sending in exile outside of Paris back to Tehran, the impact that that was having in fomenting a fundamentalist revolution. Absolutely unacceptable intelligence failure, which in one of the interviews I did with Stan Turner, he admitted was the president was poorly served. And then when the hostages are taken, Carter makes a fundamental decision, which this is one case where I wish he had followed my advice and that of our national security advisor, Dr. Budinsky, which is immediate military action, not bombing Tehran, but blockading or mining the harbors of Karg Island where over 60% of Iran's oil went. Instead, the president, in a humanitarian gesture, met with the families of the hostages, pledged that their safety was his number one priority, and it removed the threat that might have released the hostages earlier, and then makes other mistakes by holding himself up in the White House, canceling all of his trips abroad and his campaigning against Kennedy, to show he's working full-time on the hostage crisis, which made him a hostage in the White House and caused more press attention than would otherwise have been the case. Ted Koppel's Nightline program started with this. Walter Cronkite, the dean of reporting in days when facts were facts, every single night from his 30-minute broadcast, he would say, it's day 105, day 207, day 350 of the hostage crisis. It was taking like taking a drop of poison every single night. And then the true straw that broke the camel's back was the very carefully planned but ultimately fatal rescue in the desert of Iran in which hydraulic failures of three of the eight helicopters, sandstorms and others led to a total disaster in what might have been a dramatic rescue. And when the rotor blade of one of those helicopters hit the C-130 plane, full of fuel to refuel the helicopters to go into Tehran. It burst into flames. Eight of our servicemen were killed, and our administration also went down in flames. So we lose dramatically in 1980. We won six states. We lost the popular vote by 10 million. 
And the day after, Carter says to us, come into the Oval Office, get your chins off the ground, we've got two and a half months, let's make this the best transition out ever, and it was. We got the Alaska Lands Bill done, we got the Superfund chemical cleanup done, and we got Stephen Breyer nominated to the Court of Appeals at Kennedy's request. That's a wonderful story of why Carter helped a Kennedy appointee. Uh, and he's on the Supreme Court today. This book is not just about policy, it's about people, real people. And they could come out of a Shakespearean play. The villainous and the heroic, the humorous and the tragic, and I profile them in great detail. Tam doesn't permit to go into detail except for Carter himself and the book I'll close. Here's someone who comes from the tiniest hamlet and understood that the mood of the country at the time was not for new social spending after eight Republican years. It was to cleanse the presidency of Watergate. And he puts together an improbable coalition of conservative Southern whites, liberal academics, working class people in the Northeast to win his victory. He was a ferocious campaigner who had a very odd view of politics. And that is, you do what you need to do when you're running. But when you're in the Oval Office, you do, quote unquote, the right thing. That was a great strength, and it was a great weakness. It allowed him to take on issues like Panama, like the Middle East, like energy, that were political losers. But it also allowed him to accomplish these, but at great political cost. And I say here, because I think in this church it would be particularly appropriate, if you wanted one sentence that summed up sort of his religious and moral belief, it was taken from the American theologian Reinald Niebuhr, who said the sad duty of politics is to do justice in a sinful world. And that is what he tried to do. This book is not just a book about President Carter. It will give you a sense of what it's like to work in the presidency, the tremendous pressures the interest groups that are totally conflicting, the bad and worse options that you often have to choose from, the 24-7 pressures. I'm not nominating Jimmy Carter in this book for a place on Mount Rushmore, <laughs> but I am suggesting that he belongs in the foothills with a number of other presidents who made their country and the world a better place. Thank you very much. someone in the back to bring the ambassador a bit more water. Um, we've got time for a couple of questions before uh, he signs some books. So questions? All right. Quick question. Quick question. Um, given President Carter's very intense and personal involvement in all these issues, what was the role of staff? How did he view staff? And how did he view so the staff? question is, given his own intensive view of the presidency, reading every memo, always asking for more details, sometimes sending my memos back with typos uh, and grammatical <laughs> mistakes. Uh, 
what was the role of the staff? I would argue to you that it was not at the expense of having a broader vision. He did have it. Uh, and he relied on the staff to give him those decision memos. So it wasn't that he tweeted, there no tweets at the time, and just woke up and decided this was, he always wanted to know what the agencies wanted, what the White House wanted, where the political people were, so he could make an informed decision. He didn't always make the right decisions for sure, but they were always informed. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's pretty funny. You said that uh, Carter sort of being written about the military, but Sayonara, at least one of the two types of the Army, called the Army a hollow force. Uh, Stansville Turner decimated the CIA operation ranks. I mean, there's a lot of other criticism we can go over. So, how, how could you say that about? Well? Yeah, so Stan Turner was a very, very unpopular CIA director. Uh, we reformed the CIA in terms of uh, covert action, which was required because of the excesses. But I think in terms of human intelligence and the like, he clearly went too far. What I'm suggesting is that on military spending, on pure hardware, uh, that Carter did an incredible job of rebuilding uh, a decimated force uh, as a result of the post-Vietnam decline. And that's validated by a book even thicker than mine, uh, by the Pentagon that's just come out uh, that details this and Robert Gates who served as Secretary of Defense under both Republicans and Democrats and was on the National Security Council as a young man uh, with us said that everything that Reagan implemented we began and that Carter deserves to get credit for, for beginning that. Last question, Mary it's not a question, it's a comment. I was fortunate to work on a Senate Democratic staff during the Carter presidency, as did many of my friends. It was a time of great excitement, great productivity, a lot of joy, a lot of laughter. And partisanship was barely ever an issue. And I think that's what senators brought from both parties. But I think Carter's leadership in that regard helped to reinforce the fact you had an issue, you worked on the issue, and you got whoever you could to work yeah, with. Yeah, so this is a great question to end with. And I, and I really feel, I'm going to use the term, I feel religious about this issue. Our country cannot properly function without at least a modicum of bipartisanship. Partisanship is built into our system. I mean, Burr and Hamilton and, and, uh, and Jefferson, bitter fights. But in the more modern era, there was a bipartisan spirit. There were moderate Republicans, Case and Javits and Danforth and McClure and, and, uh, and, and many others, who were willing, and Baker, on key issues to support a Democratic president. And there were liberal Democrats who were willing on things like natural gas deregulation to support Carter. We have a very unusual Democratic system almost unique. All the other democracies in the world are essentially parliamentary democracies in which the party that wins both controls the legislative and executive branches. Our Constitution divided those and without at least some modicum of bipartisanship, the system just goes into an impasse. And we don't get things done that we desperately need to do. I mean, I was interviewed 15 years ago by The Economist. And they asked what I thought the greatest problem with American democracy was. And I said, the collapse of the center. There's no center. 
You can see that in what's happening right now. The Republicans have gone to the far right, the Democrats are going to the left, and the center is being, you use the term, hollered out. It doesn't work. You've got to have a critical mass of people who are willing to do the right thing to support bipartisanship, or without it, we will have great difficulty in the 21st century competing with autocratic regimes like China that can push a button and make things happen, whether it's the Belt and Road Initiative or artificial intelligence or 5G uh, wireless. Without that, we really are at a disadvantage. And so, I mean, one of the messages I think underlying this book is that with all the problems we had, there was, Mary Jane, there was a modicum of bipartisanship. There was a willingness, and it didn't come just out of thin air. We met every single week when Carter was in the country with a Democratic leadership, every single week to go over our legislative priorities. But we also, Danny Tate is here, he represented us in the Senate, we also met very, very frequently with the Republican leadership on the House and Senate. And of course they didn't support us as much as the, as the Democrats, but they appreciated the fact that we were reaching out to them. So, you know, if there's any message that I take away, it is we desperately need to restore the kind of bipartisanship that we had. It wasn't warm and fuzzy. It was a lot of sharp edges, but it worked for us and it can work again. And it has to work again if we're going to be effective in the 21st century. Here, here. Everyone, please join me. Thank you.